Hi Jo, thanks for being here. My pleasure. What is mental health to you? What do you think we're talking about when we talk about mental health? I think we're talking about something that everyone has but we don't always recognise. So we recognise that we've got physical health but I don't think everyone recognises they've got mental health until they are struggling with it and then they go, oh my mental health's really poor but actually you've got mental health all the time. Obviously people mainly know you from your second husband but i'm just wanting to go back um to your first husband because he was also ex-military wasn't he so he was a submariner and we were in married quarters down in um plymouth and that's where all the kids were kind of brought up and um, and born and he did before 22 and then he transitioned out of the military after the 22 and we came up to birmingham and i would say that probably with the transition is where our marriage fell apart because uh, we weren't used to spending that much time together, obviously, because he was based up in Faz Lane for, you know, the last couple of years. And you kind of, I think, realised that maybe the marriage was kept together by the fact that you were apart a lot. Um, and he didn't deal very well with transition and trying to find a job. And I think he didn't deal well with the, the, the downgrade of status as he saw it. You know, he had to go for quite low paid security jobs, which caused, you know, a big strain in our marriage. So we ended up splitting up, I think, within four months of him coming out. Oh, wow. Do you think that the resettlement process does have a lot of negative impact on people? Yeah, I think he... He went on a lot of courses in in the build up to him coming out, but they didn't really seem to set him up for a career and a job afterwards. It, it was kind of like, well, tick this box and, and this course will be really good. But actually in real life, some of the courses that he did, he needed actual experience in those jobs and so that went against him so it was kind of pointless some of the things that he did yeah do you um, think that mental health is an aspect that should be more focused on when people are leaving yeah i, I well i don't agree that transition should just happen you know as you come out of the military mm -hmm. i think it should be an ongoing process throughout your life really because at different points in your life transition can have more of an impact so you might come out and you've got some money you've got a new house you know everything's going great and then maybe a year or two down the line things start to become a little bit more difficult i think that's when transition can kind of hit people a bit more it's not always immediately as they come out yeah what were those four months like from him leaving to your separating uh they were really difficult. They were really, um, I think because he wasn't used to, that's the problem with uh, you know, both of my marriages. Um, they were very institutionalized. So when, um, when he came out, he didn't quite kind of know all the stresses and strains of normal life, you know, having to go and look for a job and go for interviews and having to deal with counter tax and things like because it was all taken out of your pay it was all kind of dealt yeah, with yeah. um and i think it was all those stresses of civilian life that that impacted on him and uh, later on he was um diagnosed with ptsd because right. he was in the falklands um 
um, this was after we were separated. But probably, you know, looking back, he, he did really struggle with a lot of things. He had a really bad temper. He didn't deal very well with um, things that he didn't quite know were coming. You know, he had quite high anxiety. In hindsight, probably he, he was showing a bit of signs of struggling. I, I'm not sure if it was PTSD or if it, it was just he had a, a mental health pro- you know, problem. I, I don't know, but yeah, it did have an impact. Yeah. What was it like when you then met your second husband, Dave? So Dave was in the um, army and there's a bit of a <laughs> there was a bit of a joke going around that I just needed RAF and then I was tri services. Um, <laughs> but he was a total different uh, kind of person, obviously army and navy are completely different. Yeah. Um, and there was always that bit of bravado in the army there than navy. <laughs> he didn't really <laughs> like me speaking about the first husband because of him being navy. Um <laughs> But he, when I first met him, he was um, he was quite hard to handle when I first met him. He was um, very unpredictable, um, but it was part of his, he was quite, quite bolshy and, you know, quite in your face about things, um, but it was kind of his personality. And I think when we first met, I kind of took that, um, I kind of had more of a decision on whether I could kind of cope with someone like him. Right. <laughs> uh, and I kind of finished it after a couple of months because I was like, oh, you're a lot. You're a lot <laughs> to handle. You know, he, he didn't take a lot to, to annoy. He didn't take right. a lot to, uh, you know, if, you, if you're in Asda or something and someone bashes into you, you know, he'd hunt the person down while, while around the frozen department. <laughs> like it's it's had to really stop um and then like when i'd um finished it it was after that that he um was formally diagnosed with ptsd because obviously he'd been he'd been in a lot of, of combat zones he you know he'd been in northern ireland and, and bosnia and um iraq and after we split up he was sectioned and that's when he was first diagnosed with PTSD, which kind of, you know, explains why I found him a little bit, yeah. um, a bit, bit hard to handle at the time. Yeah. And he did receive um, some CBT and EMDR and some coping strategies. And then we managed to kind of reconnect after about a year. And he was like a totally different person. He was a lot calmer didn't overreact with things you didn't have to kind of bite your tongue and think i'm not going to say that because i might annoy him yeah. he was easier to have a conversation with right he then went to afghanistan yeah he went to afghanistan in 2011 until 2012 and i was really concerned because he, he volunteered to go to afghanistan right. um he, he kind of said yeah but i've been to every other combat zone if I don't go to this one I won't feel like I've I've done everything that I should do and so he went to to Afghanistan probably against against what I really wanted it was in the news a lot you know didn't kind of want him in that situation was worried that he was doing quite well mentally obviously he had 
blips, but he knew how to um, control them. He knew what to do to make things better for himself. Um, but he was adamant, you know, and you know what it's like, it's something in, in the blood. So you can't, you can't say you can't do it. Um, yeah. So he went over there and while he was over there, he phoned me um, one time because you know you know what the phone lines are like. You know it's hit and miss. You'd have to if the phone rang, you'd have to pull the car over wherever you were to take that phone call because you know if you didn't know when phone lines would go down again or you know how long the queue was to get to to phone you. And he phoned me up and he he said, um, "Yeah, my my head's going. Uh, I I don't know if I can do this." He said, "I thought Iraq was bad, but." Afghanistan's even worse um and I said well go and talk to someone um you know and, and see if there's you know any way that you know you could come home or you know could you bring your leave forward things like that um he was like no 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 I'm, I'm I'll be fine I'll, I'll 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 sort it and literally within about three or four weeks of that I just got a message, uh, well, I saw a picture on Facebook that he put up and it was that um, the picture where you've got Bastion going that way and you've got <laughs> Afghan that way. And I was like, "What? what's going on? How come he's in a, he's uh, there? And then he was in England. And I never actually found out how he got back. I, I've, I, to this day. Do you think he should have been allowed to go out there with a history of PTSD? No, no, I don't. And when he, um, you know, after after he died, he was um, he was probably the lead, he was a leading case um in a debate in Parliament about uh, veterans' mental health. And I remember that uh, Stephen Morgan MP was telling his story, and he was saying about him going out to Afghanistan with a diagnosis of PTSD. And I remember someone standing up and saying i'm sorry that wouldn't have happened there's no way that he would have been sent to afghanistan knowing that he's got a diagnosis of ptsd because it's not safe for him and it's not safe for everyone else and and i remember at the time loads of people that were out there with him in afghanistan were commenting on social media going i was with him i know for a fact he was in afghanistan yeah. and it's kind of that 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 dismissal as, as though to say no you're wrong he wasn't there it's like no he was there yeah. and i i just think it was a really unsafe um situation for him to be to be in i i, I acknowledge that he volunteered i acknowledge that he willingly put himself in that situation but maybe in cases like that someone needs to take that willingness out of someone's hands yeah yeah, definitely. Do you think that he then was worse on the back of Afghanistan? Do you think that's what triggered what happened later on? Oh, absolutely. I think um, he was presenting to the GP within a couple of months of being back, you know, and he was complaining of sleeplessness. He was complaining of um, how aggressive and agitated he'd started to become um and he was prescribed with sertraline at the time and that was within a couple of months of coming back right okay. 
he then he left the army, didn't he, after Afghanistan? Yeah, he never he he decided that that I think because he recognised it, it had an impact on him. He said that that was it. He wouldn't yeah. he wouldn't do anything where um, where that was concerned again. And he used to get you know that that piece of paper where you sign up for the full time reservists all the time. Mm-hmm. And he said, I, I won't be signing it again. Do you think that he got enough help then when he left after Afghanistan? No, I think the difficulty with him was because he didn't go out to Afghanistan with a full-time regiment, he was kind of like, came back and it was back to normal life. So there there was no checking in, there was no making sure that he was okay. Um, Because he went out with a TA unit um, and there was no follow-up with him at all. It was almost like that is a massive gap that exists. He didn't have anyone to to really connect with afterwards and talk about maybe the effects it had on him. It was just, right, you're back back, um, to normal life now, off your chart. Right. And how did he find that, getting a job in Civvy Street? He always wanted to be around um, people that had either served or people who owned businesses that had had served. He, he didn't really, I think because of the way he presented himself, the way he spoke, the way he dealt with people, it was very hard for him to fit into a, um, a full civilian company. <laughs> Because uh, he, he he spoke in very um very clipped language, yeah. which could come across like he was always angry, but actually it wasn't. It was just the way that he he communicated, and he had really aggressive body language. And I remember he went for he went for a course to do um, security, and and one of the trainers came up to him after and said, "You've got really aggressive body language. Like you <laughs> could be quite intimidating." And it was like a revelation to him. He's like, oh, this is how I talk. I just talk with my hands and up. He used to say he used to look like he was chopping up things, you know, with his hands. And the more animated he got, the more choppier he got. Um, But it was a revelation to him. And I think he sought out companies where a veteran owned the company or people who worked there had served. I think purely because they were his people that they were who he could communicate with that he felt comfortable with who understood him a little bit so um he ended up with a security company that was based down in london and they were um in charge of barracks down there like it was being converted um one of the cavalry uh barracks down there i can't remember what it's called um so he was the security manager for that and he, he really enjoyed that company, he really enjoyed being around those people. And one of the advantages of him, he was very, um, very particular. He would work 16 hours in a day if he needed to. Mm-hmm. He always got things done. Everything was quite regimented. Everything was seen through properly. And that was the advantage of employing him as well. So it, it worked both ways, really. Yeah. How was it for him being so far away in London on his own? I think he he particularly liked the working away. It was what he was used to. Mm-hmm. And he, he, I remember him saying to me, 
you know, when you put me in situations like that, that's that's my norm. That's what I'm used to. Um, or you put me in a situation where there's bullets flying everywhere. I feel at home. I don't feel worried. I don't feel anything. He said the, the situations where I feel that I don't fit in and I don't know what to handle is family life. He said, because you all expect something completely different from me. You expect things from me that I'm not used to giving and you expect me to communicate in a way that I'm not used to communicating and he found that more of a struggle. So I think working away was his little bit of reprieve from from what he felt was a different set of criteria that he needed for family life that he felt difficult to adapt to. Yeah. Do you think that's something that should be part of the transition process? Just making sure that people with families do know what leaving the military and getting back into family life is? Yeah, and I also think vice versa. I think families need um, need help in transition as well. They need to understand the impact and they need to understand how to make things easier for both themselves and for the other person. I think it, you can't kind of separate the two because you kind of need the both elements to come together to make transition yeah. better. Yeah can't kind of say it's just the person because it, the, actually the family is transitioning as well because they're having to deal with you know the, the feelings of maybe a loss of identity maybe not feeling as valued within the communities and things like that and that can have a big impact on how someone is at home so I think we need to kind of think about the holistic view of transition 2016 was uh his first suicide attempt is that right mm -hmm. yeah yeah um what was it like dealing with that and what was the run-up to that like um he's gradually over so obviously he went to afghan in 2012 and then over the following years it, it there was peaks and troughs of where he would be um quite good in his mental health and then other times when it was quite poor and as as things progressed, he would spend longer and longer away in London or, or make excuses to kind of be away from the family a little bit more. And I think being in London didn't help in the fact of he was around a lot of people that um, saw maybe he was struggling a little bit and, oh, I know something that will help you with that. And of course, it was cocaine. Um, and he became addicted to cocaine. Um, it had the opposite effect of what you would think it would have. It calmed him down, which it seems really weird, but I kind of liken it to, you know, when children have got ADHD and we give them Ritalin and it's got a little bit, little element of like a speed-like element in it, but it, it calms them down. It works, it worked the same on him. Um, so around 2016, he, you know, he was quite, um, unpredictable in both his mental health and with the, the drugs and he became quite um, really poorly with how much how many drugs he was taking he, he you know he was not only taking cocaine but he was swallowing he was called called it bombing speed and 
he used to say to me, I don't, I don't know how I'm alive. Like, why am I still alive after all? Like, I'm doing everything I can. So it was kind of like, we kind of look at the suicide attempt as, a, as an end, an end, but it, it really wasn't. There was lifestyle choices and things that he was doing as well to hasten that. He, he actually was taking so many drugs to more or less kind of tempt fate to kind of go, do you know what, take me. Mm -hmm. um, and he was always quite surprised that he was still alive and nothing he could do to his body. But on the other hand, he worked out a lot and he he ran a lot and things like that. So it was kind of like his body was a bit too resilient yeah. to the means that he was trying. And he ended up with um, a deviated septum and some immune problems because of the, the cocaine use. And he was um, at Guys and Thomas's down in, in London. He's, he had an operation and things like that. And... I think the bad thing about the drugs is not only not only did he take them for self-harm as well as self-medication, but it also impacted on his self-esteem, how he viewed himself, because he didn't like being, he didn't like the person he was turning into and he didn't like what he was doing. So all of that, as well as the PTSD, became like this big ball all mixed in together. And he used to carry, it sounds really morbid, um, so just for a trigger warning for anyone that's, that's listening, um, he used to have this noose um, he carried around as, as a, he said it was his friend. And he used to basically go mad if anyone ever touched it. And he said it was his, it was his way of controlling things like, he always knew that he had this noose, it was his friend. And if things got too bad for him, he could, it was always there. Yeah. And apparently that would stop him from actually going through with it because he knew that this was always, there wasn't always a kind of, yeah, but I know that I can, I can dip out at any time and I'm in control of it. Um, and there was this one, this one day where, you know, he, he didn't, he felt like it was the time for him to go and he he uh did a suicide attempt by by using the noose uh, but apparently he he looked down and he saw a picture of me of the kids and he kind of thought oh my god what the hell am i doing and one of his friends came in at that point and actually cut the noose down and i think he was more angry about the fact that his noose had been broken than anything else and uh, that sounds really mad when you actually say it out loud um i mean it was like little things like he used to um because i was a teacher at the time and obviously that's quite a highly stressful job as well yeah. and then i was doing all the things with the the house and doing all of that and then i was his advocate and phone to him till early hours in the morning sometimes and then he during break times he, he'd send me pictures of the noose and say yeah today is a good day i feel in control and like when you look back at that, you think this is mad. If anyone ever got hold of my phone and read some of this stuff, they'd be like, "What the hell?" But in that, that's quite isolating as well because with the career that I had and the job that I had, I couldn't exactly go to you know in lunch break and go, "Yeah, you know, guess what I just received." It, 
it almost isolates you as a person as well. So, so you're their supporter and you're their, their confidant and, and all of that because there wasn't very many people who trusted. Um, but also that could be quite isolating for me because I wasn't in the kind of job that I could go in and say, yeah, this weekend was really rough. You know, he, he was, some of his friends were phoning me saying they were a bit worried about him. Um, he's been taking a lot of drugs and you just can't do that. You can't. Yeah. And most people have this horrible stigma about, you know, drug use and they kind of blame the person and say, oh, well, why are you with him and things like that? So it's, it, it's really complicated. Yeah. What was it like for you then following on from that up until his death? I think it just got, it just got really intense he required more and more support more and more advocacy more and more um almost like i became like a mother figure in some ways it was almost like even though we were married we weren't it wasn't actually a marriage as such it was i was there as his constant i was there to listen and to act and to make sure that everything kept together so make sure the home was was okay make sure the job was okay make sure he was okay and and i think you know at the time as well um one of my one of my daughters um has autism so she was in a um a special school and she was also suffering really poor mental health um and she was also in the children's hospital with um suicide attempts and um, mental health issues um so it was a lot it was a lot of the time almost like it kind of like everything kind of merged into one and if you weren't supporting one and having phone calls about that you were supporting someone else and having phone calls about that so yeah it was it was quite an intense period between 2016 and 18. did you receive any support no none at all I don't think anyone actually really ever asked me. I think I'm really good at putting on a front though, and I'm really good, I think, because of the of being a teacher and things like that. You know, teaching is just basically you're acting, you're just acting all day because you can't let you can't let your personal um, problems or life affect what you're doing. In some ways, that's good because almost you walk into work at seven o'clock in the morning and it's almost like right now I'm in work zone. Yeah. Um, and then at five, six o'clock, now I'm in home life and you deal with everything then. Um, I think I went to one one therapy. I think I reached out at one point. I started to get um, really bad anxiety and I never really suffered with um, anxiety and, and I started having panic attacks. And I think it was just the pure stress of everything over the years it just caught up with me and i went to one one therapy session um with a charity and i never went back because the therapist actually said well you need to keep away from the things that are causing you you know poor mental health you so you, you need to probably not answer the phone to your husband and you probably not don't need to support him as much and i was like that's mad we're married like how can i stay away from from that it it was almost like 
I had a role to play in how poor my mental health has started getting, but I didn't have a role. It wasn't voluntary. Yeah. It was a case of this is the way that my my family life is, and I just need a way to be able to cope with this in a in a functioning way. And, and I just felt really misunderstood. I didn't feel that they understood the actual pressure that that I was under. Um, and and I always had this thing in the back of my mind that if at any point I kind of said you know, enough, I can't, I can't do this anymore to Dave, or if ever I put myself first, it would have a fatal consequence. So I was almost in a situation that when people say, oh, you should put your, your own um, oxygen mask on first, I think that's really easy for people to say unless they're in that situation. Yeah. Unless they know the consequences of, if I do that, what is that going to look like for my family and for me? Yeah. I remember even like, some of his friends down um, in London, they reached out to, to charities on his behalf and they were told to just just take him to A&E then if you're really worried about him. But they were like, yeah, but I can't get him to A&E. He won't go to A&E because he doesn't like all the crowds. He doesn't like all the people. And they were like, well, unless he's willing to help himself. And it was a really kind of really frustrating time for everyone around around Dave. And I remember when, you know, at his funeral, um, one of his friends, when he read the eulogy, was was crying so much, saying, I tried. I tried to get him help, but just nobody would listen. And there was nowhere else for us to go. Um, and I know that people say this phone lines and... and he did once try to phone uh, one of the phone lines, but he said, oh, I, I just don't trust the person at the end of the phone. How do I know they're not just sitting there knitting and they're, yeah. they're, they're not an old granny that someone's just put on a phone and they've got no qualifications? Why would I bear my soul to someone who I, yeah. I, I can't trust? I don't know who they are. Um, so we, knew we wouldn't phone these phone lines. So, we, you know, I did... I did Google a lot and I did get him in um, in a lot of therapy. We paid for some private therapy. Um, he went back to the GP a lot. Um, the GP never quite saw through any any um, referrals. He, um, you know, he was under every major charity that he could get. Um, and then when it came to 2018, obviously, you know, his job finished in London and it was almost like the perfect storm because not only was he already struggling, but then he already felt uh, really low self-worth, low self-esteem because of what he was doing with the drugs and things like that. Um, and then when he lost his job, that kind of impacted even more. Um, and, and you know, within weeks he was in a mental health crisis. It was almost like he was kind of teetering on the edge for, for many years. And then something just, just that one last bit just pushed him over the edge. Yeah. I think on the day that he died, there'd been such a long run up to that. So many frustrations of, of trying to get the mental health teams to to recognize how poorly he was. And there were so many conversations that went on behind the scenes 
between different organisations, but not they weren't communicating with each other, but they were communicating within their teams and they weren't, nothing was kind of followed through. So I think by the time he died, it was just a culmination of, of I kind of said that to someone once, it's like going into a hall of mirrors. Yeah. And everywhere you turn, there's another, there's another mirror and you don't quite know your way out of this maze. Yeah. That was what his crisis was like. It was like everywhere you turned, there was nowhere to actually, there was no one actually there to go, right, you know what, I'm going to help you through this and we're going to make sure everything's okay. Mm. Um, and I think it was even like the day before he died, I'd phoned up the mental health team and I'd said, look, you know, because he'd gone missing for five days. He, he'd... um. 10 days before he died, he'd smashed up the house to an extreme uh, point. And, and that wasn't Dave, that wasn't who he was. Um, but we ended up with police negotiators here trying to get him down from the attic where he was saying he was going to take his life, couldn't live like this. He, you know, he was saying to the police, like, you don't know what I live with on a daily basis. And we had police officers everywhere and then they arrested him the next morning um because they had to send us out of the house for our own safety and we ended up sleeping in a car overnight in, in mcdonald's car park because there was just nowhere for us to go over the years family have gone away you know because he's a bit he's a bit hard to handle isn't he and he's a bit you know you don't really invite him to things and you know over the years people just they don't want to know. It's too much for them. And they arrested him the next day and they, they were adamant that I should press charges against him because he'd, he'd upended a table and at the time it had bruised me. But it wasn't on purpose. It was just I happened to be in the way. Yeah. Um, then I got accused of enabling him and making excuses for him and, and because I was like, I'm not making a statement. I just want you to see how bad this situation is how ill he is, how dangerous this situation is. Um, and I even said to my GP, like, none of you are going to be happy until he either kills me or he kills himself. And then all of you are going to go, oh, do you know what? Maybe we should have listened. Yeah. And, you know, those words came back to haunt them afterwards, didn't they? Yeah. Do you think he should have been sectioned again? Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, we, we ended up getting, um, you know, a, a, a specialist looking over everything that happened. Because obviously Dave's, Dave's inquest was part of a, was a Article 2 inquest. Right. He was under the care of a public, public body. So that means that his human right to life was not um, upheld by the public body when they know or they think that there's an imminent risk to life and they have a responsibility to stop that from happening um, and, and it was found that they didn't. Um, so Regulation 28 was issued um, after his death and um, I just think that, you know, it's all great in hindsight but at the time it's very frustrating, Yeah. you know, trying to get all of these people and, and I kind of like at the inquest it was really you know, every single professional that's giving evidence, you know, it was a four-day inquest. 
they're crying and saying in hindsight he should have had a mental health act assessment and in hindsight he should have been sectioned and the specialists look after looked over everything and went there were so many failures and so many times that he should have been sectioned yeah. and nobody would listen nobody would um kind of put things together i think the, the coroner said nobody took a nobody took account of the accumulative effects of mental health kind of one thing and then another thing and how it all builds up into a massive thing that someone just cannot cope with anymore that wasn't taken into account and the other thing that wasn't taken into account was the fact that he was ex-army with a service attributed recognized service attributed mental health condition he was not treated in any different way than than anybody else and you know the teams that dealt with him at the crisis team had no training in in his particular mental health um problem so he was almost being treated like everybody else but he had a very particular uh, yeah. and that's not saying that he he was any better than anybody else it's not saying that you know he deserved more than anyone else that's not what i'm saying i'm saying that he deserved people that actually understood how he was presenting and and what his particular issues were for example like uh, the psychiatrist told him um that there's no such thing as disassociation yeah. uh, because dave was disassociating more and more and for longer and longer periods towards the end of his life and uh, the he said no that doesn't you're just saying that to make an excuse um it's just you justifying how you're behaving and what you're saying and doing it, which is really frustrating because that just shows a total lack of understanding and you know if they just looked at his combat stress um report which they wouldn't they were never given and they and they never asked to look at you know, he's he formally diagnosed with that, with yeah. disassociated PTSD by a consultant psychiatrist on, on two occasions. And they were just like, nah, it doesn't exist. Yeah. Do you think that's something that prevents people a lot of the time going and asking for help once they've left? Yeah, because I think it's the lack of understanding. I think it's the lack of, um, the lack of training. I think everyone should be trained in, in how different uh ptsd ptsd looks like in the military community and i think you know because we all know the word ptsd we all think it we know what it looks like but it looks completely different and we wouldn't kind of say someone's autistic we're on a spectrum aren't we and and everyone has to know about that spectrum and it's the same with ptsd we have we can't just go yeah well we know what it looks like we, but you don't know what it looks like in this community yeah. and how it presents and the impact it has it's really frustrating isn't it um, and then it goes back to you know how we started off saying when you asked me what does mental health mean to you yep does that not fly in the face of if you're training to be a doctor why aren't you recognizing that we all have mental health and we have physical health we can't kind of separate the two. You need to know about both. Yeah. So if you're not training, you know, junior doctors in, in, in every aspect, I'm not saying they have to be specialists, you know, that's why people go into psychiatry and psychology, but they should recognize certain things and they should, 
you know, at least be able to support people and, and refer them to the correct people. Yeah. Um, what would you say to someone who might be contemplating doing something or who was going through a similar situation to what Dave was? I would say that things can get better. And I would say that just because today is a really, really tough day, kind of look, break it up into chunks and just go, I'm just going to get through today and I'll see what tomorrow, you know, looks like and I'll deal with tomorrow, tomorrow. And I think you need to make sure that you have good people around you that will support you and will reach out on your behalf sometimes and, and talk, give them permission to be able to advocate for you. That was one of the things um, that I think helped in our situation. I had the form filled out from the GP to say that I could speak on his behalf. I could interact with with everyone. And at the time it was Tills. And when I phoned up and got him referred to Tills, all he had to do was confirm his service number and his history and that I could talk to them. And, and, And then I did everything else for him. I think that's a really important thing that people need to be able to do yeah. on behalf of people. Because n- not everyone can do this on their own. It's a bloody hard thing to do on your own, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, since his death, you have founded For The Fallen. So when when he died, um, I kind of really needed to connect with other people that had experienced the same as me. Um, and the same as we're saying, you know, we need to understand what PTSD in the military community looks like and how it looks different. We need to understand how suicide bereavement in the military community looks different as well. Um, and that's one of the things that I found was lacking when I was first bereaved because yeah, I could join, I could join SOBS and I could join other suicide bereavement, but almost I had to deal with the whole you know, six years of living with someone with quite severe PTSD and supporting them, and then they end up taking their life. It's not just the taking their life that had an impact on me. It was the whole build-up and the whole kind of advocating for someone for so long, and then they end up dying. Um, And I didn't feel that I was understood by um, generic suicide um, support. So... I decided to set something up myself because obviously at that time it was in the media a lot there was a lot of things going on so I thought that, that I know this community has other people that are bereaved by suicide who are they talking to what support are they getting um and so I set up for the fallen which is a peer-to-peer support um group it's it's peer-led um and families just connect with each other and talk to each other it's it's very unique in this community. You know, some people who are still serving have service inquiries to go through. How do you write a statement for a service inquiry? How do you do an inquest? If you want to find legal representation, it's a very specialist area. And there's not very many uh, solicitors out there that, that deal with this, who, who are really good and understand the, the community. It's, it's quite specialist. Um, and it's things like that that we kind of help families to do um, and also dealing through the trauma of not only suicide bereavement but a lot of the families we support have had such a traumatic 
lead up to that. It's not just it's not just been um, the time when they've died, even if they weren't engaged in help. There's been a lot of family trauma beforehand and people need help to, to deal with that. And also to be linked in with the, the right people that can help them with trauma focused therapy. Yeah, I think that's absolutely amazing. Um, I just want to end it on because obviously I know we've talked a lot about kind of those last stages of his life, but I think it'd be quite nice to end on a bit of a high note about him. So him sort of pre illness, what sort of person he was? Oh, he was, he was probably the most loyal friend you'd ever get. He'd give other people things before himself. He had, um, a really good sense of humor. He was probably, he was a bit of a, bit of an idiot sometimes, <laughs> but yeah, he was, he was hardworking. He was, he was quite funny. Um, he loved his family. He advocated for his family so much. And, and kind of that's why I do what I do a little bit now, because, you know, he used to get so frustrated about, well, why are you all asking me how I am? Why do you never ask how she is or the kids? He was just a, a decent person, you know, underneath it all. And that's what I think people need to remember that they shouldn't look at someone's mental, poor mental health as that is the whole person because that's not, that's, that's an element. The actual person, you need to look a bit deeper for that person. Yeah, brilliant. It's been brilliant speaking to you. Thank you. You too.